morning. Good morning, Ken. Since you're the only one said good morning. <laughs> he is risen. Amen. Let's have a word of prayer, shall we? Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that we can be together, especially this morning as we are reminded of the truth that we, we do not serve a king who has died and is still in the grave. We serve a king, a God who is risen and who is returning, who has come to accomplish something and has accomplished it and will return to complete that. And so, Lord, we rejoice this morning that we have been set free. So thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. And thank you for um, bringing us into life. In your name I pray. Amen. We are going to, I've been debating back and forth where to go this morning uh, with regard to the Easter message. As a matter of fact, when I came this morning, I had two possible messages. And I've decided I'm going to stay in Hebrews this morning. So we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10. We are standing at a day that we recognize is, is pointing to the most, I would argue, the most stupendous, stunning shift in world history that we can imagine. There have been all sorts of amazing shifts in world history. I have to be honest. There have been amazing ones, haven't there? And we could just, we could just examine just a few, or not examine, but mention just a few. For example... Um, something as simple as Thomas Edison developing the light bulb. That's a pretty amazing thing, isn't it? Before then, the best you had is candle power, literal candle power. After that, we can sit in a room with no windows and with no problem at all read our books and see each other and dialogue together and things like that. It's, it, it's an amazing shift that took place. The discovery of oil. Back, I think it was in Illinois in the 1800s. Stunning how it changed our world, isn't it? How about the people who, who got on the ship and sailed over into this place that was unknown called the New World that they discovered? Stunning shift. Everything changed in our world as a result of that, didn't it? So you go on and on and on with all the examples, and those aren't even the real major ones. There's all sorts of stunning examples where, where there was actually an incredible paradigm shift that would take place as a result of discoveries or whatever the case may be. Um, you could even go back into the ancient world. Uh, the establishment, there was a man by the name of Hammurabi. Some would call his name Hammurabi that developed a law code. You've probably heard of Hammurabi. He established a law code that changed the world to this day. They've even discovered the black, black obelisk that has his law code on it. Changed the world to this day from ancient times. So you find these amazing events that have had long-term rippling effects. Can I just submit to you what we're talking about today puts all of those to shame. The change that we're talking about today is a change that is in a different league. I don't care if you're talking about the people who came across in the, in the ships and discovered the new world. I don't care if you're talking about 
Hammurabi. I don't care if you're talking about Thomas Edison. I don't care who you're talking about. For every single one of them and their discoveries that have changed our world, the reality is in every single category, they still died. In every category, they still were without hope, ultimately. The only hope that, for example, Thomas Edison could offer is a little bit more light. Changed our world, but the only thing he could offer is a little more light. At the end, nothing really changed for Thomas Edison. It's still the same. At the end, nothing changed for Hammurabi. It was still the same. In every, in every case, the end result was still the same. And for everyone who have enjoyed those quantum shifts, the end result for everyone has been always the same. There's only been one change in the story of history that eternally changed everything. Only one. And that's the story of Jesus Christ. Friday we celebrated Jesus Christ's death. Today we celebrate his resurrection. I would start out by saying this, if I may. I'm not going to argue the point. I'm not going to attempt to try to prove the point. I'm just going to declare the point. When we say he is risen, we're stating something that is true. It's a fact. He rose from the grave. He literally died. He literally rose again. And his rising from the grave if I may just say, say this, was radically different from, for example, the story of the scriptures with Lazarus raising from the grave. See, when Lazarus rose from the grave because Jesus called him out of the grave, <coughs> Lazarus still died. He died again later on. Jesus' death and resurrection is radically different from that. And the effects of the resurrection, the effects of Christ's death and resurrection ripple down to today undiminished, unaltered, the results of it are just as important and powerful today as they ever will, were, and they're just as powerful as they ever will be. When we talk about the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection, the most important thing we can understand is why. Before we get into the text this morning, the most important thing we can grapple with is the why. We can talk about his resurrection, the results of the resurrection, and those are really important. We're going to talk about that. But in order to do that, we've got to talk about the why. And so I, you all know this. I just want to remind you. Why is the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection so important? And the answer to that is the death of Jesus Christ and the resulting resurrection three days later of Jesus Christ is so important because of Genesis chapter 3. You see, the scriptures tell us right away that God created man. And when he created man, he created man. Just like he created everything else, he created him good. When he looked in the, at, at his creation of man, he said, he, created, he said, it's very good. And the scriptures are pretty clear that he created man to fellowship with him. Not because he needed fellowship, but he created man so that there could be a fellowship between man and God. And the problem was found in Genesis chapter 3 because man who should have reveled in and enjoyed forever the fellowship with his creator. That makes sense, doesn't it? enjoy the fellowship of your creator makes complete sense 
Man who should have enjoyed fellowship with his creator instead decided that he knew better and that his creator didn't either want what's best for him or couldn't provide what's best for him. He was impotent to provide what's best for him. And so according to Genesis chapter 3, man rebelled. Even though God said, in the day you shall eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's the day you'll die. And Adam and Eve ate the tree of knowledge of good and evil. I want to remind you that they could have very easily eaten from the tree of life. That was not prohibited from them. They could have eaten from the tree of life and enjoyed fellowship with their Redeemer forever. They chose to eat from the tree of knowledge, good and evil. The result was they gained exactly what they thought they'd gain. They gained the knowledge of good and evil. Because the evil one said to them, Satan said to them, when you eat it, God knows the day you'll eat of it, you'll be like him, you'll know good from evil. And he was right. Because the day they ate from him, from it, they discovered the knowledge of good and evil. The thing that, that the evil one didn't tell them is you'll only be able to do evil. You'll be able to comprehend, but you'll only be able to do evil. And so death immediately began to work in them, although God was very gracious because he didn't physically kill them that day. They did spiritually die that day. And he promised that he would send a solution, an all-time eternal solution, in the fullness of time. The story, we look at the history in the Old Testament is the people just kept on rebelling, didn't they? They just kept on rebelling. Why did they keep on rebelling? Because they would know the difference between good and evil, but they would only be able to what? Do evil. So they're going to do what? They're going to rebel. It's a story you find all the way through. They just rebelled and rebelled and rebelled and rebelled and rebelled. We read the story now in the Old Testament, so often we scratch our head and say, what were they thinking? Right? That's what we find ourselves saying so often. What were they thinking? And we miss the point. That's the result of the fall. And yet God was really merciful. Because the story of the scriptures say that as he promised, he would send a redeemer. He did. We celebrated that at Christmas. He sent a redeemer. And that redeemer, Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, miraculously conceived. Lived the perfect life that only a God-man could. And at about 33 years old or so, the world had had enough of him. And the world said it's time for him to die. Little did they know that that was exactly his plan all along. The Old Testament prophesied there had to be a sacrificial lamb. And it had to be a perfect lamb. And all the sacrifices we've been learning in the book of Hebrews, all the sacrifices of the Old Testament served only the purpose of covering. They did not remove sin. By God's design, they could not remove sin. Only the perfect lamb of God could. And Jesus Christ came as the perfect lamb of God. And although they thought that they were the first causes, actually God was the first cause. Because he came to die. And he died on the cross. And we celebrated that last Friday. But as we just sang, the grave couldn't contain him. 
because God's plan is not just for the perfect Lamb of God, the Redeemer, to die, but that he should rise again. His death has to be different from every other death. Every other death is ultimately purposeless apart from Christ's death. But Christ's death served a purpose. According to the scriptures, it served three major purposes. The three major purposes were to defeat Satan, to, va- to, defeat, to destroy the power of sin, and to defeat death, the power of death. In order for that to happen, resurrection had to take place. Christ had to walk on this planet again, move among men. And he did. The scriptures record the story, the history of it taking place. I would argue the most momentous historical event that ever took place that radically changed everything more than anything else for eternity. The only one that changed things for eternity was the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? Well, before Christ's death and resurrection, sin still held sway, didn't it? The Old Testament is a clear evidence of it. Sin still held sway. Satan was unrestrained, as it were. Obviously, he was restrained. He wasn't supreme. God is supreme, but he still had his way. And death was still at work. When Christ came, everything changed. Before then, sin could be covered with sacrifices, but it could not be removed. Before the the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, for example, the Jews could not enter the Holy of Holies. They could not enter into the holiest of places in the presence of God. If they did, they would die. They could not go there. But something radically happened in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we sit here this morning, I stand, you sit here this morning, celebrating the results. We're here today because it is a stunning turn of events. And ultimately, when we talk about the stunning, stunning uh, turn of events, you can't describe it any better than to describe it this way. <coughs> Before the death of Christ, I'm just go back to the death of Christ. Before the death of Christ, man deserved something because of the fall. And he couldn't avoid something that belonged to him. Couldn't avoid it. What is that one thing he could not avoid? The one thing he could not avoid is God's wrath. It was impossible. God is holy. He cannot tolerate sin. So man, before the death of Christ, could do nothing, was absolutely 100% impotent to avoid the wrath of God. Impossible. Because God is holy. Wrath had to be poured out. I said that they sacrificed, and the sacrifices were covering their sin temporarily, Wrath was not being removed by the covering. It was being delayed. But when Jesus Christ came, was arrested, tried, convicted, hauled off to the tree, hung up on the tree on Golgotha, the last thing he said was, 
it is finished. And the scriptures tell us that the wrath of God was satisfied. It was a horrifying thing for Jesus to take on what didn't belong to him. You see, because the simple matter of fact is we all have sinned, the scriptures tell us, and we're all as a result condemned. But Jesus, according to the scriptures, he took on what didn't belong to him. You've heard me say it before. He took on an alien sin, your sin and mine. As a result of taking on an alien sin, the scriptures say that he received an alien wrath, a wrath that didn't belong to him. It belonged to you and I. It belonged to everybody else. And he absorbed that wrath. The scriptures say that, 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 that the father turned his face away. And the picture is turning, a, turning the face of, of blessing away and turning the full vent of wrath upon Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your face away? But at the end, right before he died, he said it is finished. And the picture is wrath is satisfied. The wrath of God is satisfied in Christ's sacrifice as the perfect Lamb of God. I already said it, but the resurrection needed to take place. It's absolutely essential that it takes place. It demonstrates on the one hand that the promise has been completed. Sin has been conquered. Death has been overcome. That Satan has been bound. But it also introduces us to something else that Philippians 3 tells us. It's an interesting thing that Philippians 3 tells us. It says, Paul is saying, what I want to know is the power of his resurrection. It's an interesting statement. The power of his resurrection. And that's the other thing that the resurrection is so important to understand is because <coughs> death without resurrection is ultimately meaningless for you and me. Because without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we still don't have any concept that sin, Satan, and death have been defeated. With his resurrection, the evidence is clear that sin no longer has the power. Satan is defeated, and the power of death is gone. Or as 1 Corinthians 15 says, the sting of death is gone. So when he was resurrected... It, it, it teaches you and I and illustrates for you and I the reality of the power of the resurrection. The power of the resurrection is the power of new life, different life. Life lived in a different way. Life experienced in a different way, but more importantly, a different life is not just a practice. It's a different life. You see, before the resurrection, it was powerless, right? There was no power against sin, Satan, and death. None. Because the resurrection, those who are in Christ have a different life, set free. It's amazing. It's stunning, actually. Which brings us to chapter 10, verses 19 and following. If you'll follow along with me in Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. The writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, 
that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We're going to stop there for today. What the writer of Hebrews says, if we work our way through the text, obviously he's writing to those who have received Christ to be their Savior. He's writing to those. That doesn't mean that it's unapplicable to those who have not. What it means for those who have not is hear, listen, hear about the, the reality of what Christ has, has accomplished. Hear what God says about life on the other side. For those of us who have been saved by Jesus Christ, the point of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through the end of the, uh, through our section of 22, he's saying, I want to remind you of something. I want to remind you of the truth. I want to remind you of the reality. I want to remind you of where you stand by the power of Jesus Christ. That's why he says, therefore, brothers. He goes on, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, which is, as we understand Hebrews being written to primarily, not completely, but primarily a Jewish audience, what does he say? He says, since we have confidence entering the holy places, I've, I alluded to it before, but I want to remind you what the writer of Hebrews is saying, since everything has changed. That's the idea. He says, brothers, since everything has changed, that is, everything essential has changed. Not everything, everything, but everything essential has changed. You know, that's obvious, right? Not everything, everything has changed. Like, you know, for example, Matt woke up this morning with a beard. I hope you didn't grow that this morning. You woke up with that, right? What? Overnight, yeah, okay. He woke up this morning with the same beard he went to bed with, and he has the same beard on now. And this evening, unless he decides to shave it, it'll still be there. I'm being silly, but you get the point. When I say everything has changed, I don't mean that, like, Matt woke up, looked in the mirror and said, what in the world? What we're talking about is everything essential has changed. There's a lot of unessential things. There's only one thing that's essential. Only one. And the essential thing is this. Without Christ, we're hopeless. With Christ, we have complete hope. That's the key. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying, in light of what has happened at the death and resurrection of Christ, because of that, since that happened, we now have something that we didn't have before. We have hope. Now, let me qualify that again. When he talks about the hope here, he's not talking about hope like you and I typically use the word hope. When we typically talk about the word hope, we say, I hope that this works out well. I hope that we have a good lunch. I hope that our dinner plans work out and that the meal's not overcooked. Or to be really blunt and painful, if you were here Friday night, I made clam chowder, and I hoped it was going to turn out well. And you know what? It didn't. Not to my standards, it didn't. Not even close. I screwed up the recipe. That's not what we're talking about when we say hope here. The word hope mentioned here is more referring to sure. We have a sure hope. The idea is before we were hopeless, we couldn't enter into the holy places, meaning we could not have fellowship with God. Why? Because we were sinners with sin that was not dealt with. 
wrath had not solved the dilemma, the conundrum, as it were. We could not enter into the presence of God. The only places in the Old Testament where someone is in the presence of God is because of God's mercy, the Scriptures tell us, that they were not consumed. Because they had no right to be there. None. But because of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, the writer of Hebrews can say, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence or hope to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's a stunning picture. The idea is, before we could not enter into the presence of God. Couldn't. Had no hope, had no confidence to survive. Today, everything's changed. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we now have the confidence the sure hope that when we enter into the presence of God, we have safety. We can be confident of being there and being there well. Secure. Safe. And when I say enter the presence of God, I'm not talking about the future when we die. I'm talking about today as well. Since, brothers, we have confidence to enter into the holy places, notice what he says. We have confidence to enter the holy place. How? What does it say? By the blood of Jesus. By the sacrifice. By the perfect Lamb of God. Before the Lamb of God's blood was shed, we had no hope. After, we have hope. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, and he goes on and says, in I want you to hear this very carefully. Verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain. Now we have the great picture. If you remember the story of the crucifixion, we've mentioned it before. When Christ died, what happened in the temple? The curtain was rent in two. The curtain that divided the holy place from the holy of holies, which was symbolic of being in the very presence of God. When Christ breathed his last, the scriptures record that the curtain tore in half from the top to the bottom. A curtain that could not be torn from the top to the bottom, only from the bottom to the top, because they're tight. Tore from the top to the bottom, symbolically representing that for the first time, you can enter and not die. Because wrath has been poured out. It's been completed. It is finished. So he says in verse 20, by the new and living way, it's new, it's different. There was no way before, but now there's a new and living way that he, Jesus, opened up for you and I. This is what we celebrate today. He opened the way to intimacy, to fellowship with God. Without that, there's no hope. The idea is, Without that, it doesn't matter ultimately what we do with our lives. Do you realize that? I mean, societally, it's good to be productive. It's good to accomplish things. It's good to work hard. Societally, right? Of course it is. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I don't care who you are. I don't care how hard you work. I don't care how much you accomplish. I don't care how famous you are. I don't care how much good you do in our world. At the end of the day, you're going to die. Sorry about the bad news. You and I are going to die. 
And according to the scriptures, we're all going to stand in judgment. Everyone. The only difference that is going to be made in the day of judgment is this. For some, the sacrifice will have been applied of Jesus Christ. And others, it will not. For some, because of Christ's death and resurrection, satisfying the wrath of God, the judge will look on us and he will see the righteousness of Christ. The sacrifice was paid because he stood in our place. And he put us, put us in his place. For others, there will be no Christ's righteousness because Christ has been rejected. The sacrifice has not been applied. No matter how good we are, no matter how well we've done, the simple reality is the new and living way that he has opened up for us through the curtain is, according to the scriptures, the only way. There is no other way. The old way was death. The new way is life. The old way, no fellowship with God. The new way, fellowship with God. The old way, sins, could only be atoned by an eternity of punishment separated from God. The new way. It's paid for by Christ. Sin, Satan, and death defeated in the resurrection demonstrated it. We have a new and living way that he opened up through the curtain. And when he, he goes on and says, that is through his flesh referring to his sacrifice. Verse 21, he goes on and says, And since we have a great high priest or a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from the evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I want you to notice verse 21, going back to that verse, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, what that means is this is not just something. When we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are not merely celebrating what took place almost 2,000 years ago. We are. We certainly are celebrating what happened almost 2,000 years ago. Christ resurrected from the dead. Again, conquering sin, Satan, and death. But in the present tense, he says what? We have a great priest. As a result of what he's accomplished, we have a great priest. And that great priest is doing exactly what a, the great priest would do. He's advocating, defending, representing. Arguing the case of what he's accomplished. So that, for example, when Satan accuses, which is what he does, that's what Satan is, he's the accuser. When Satan accuses me, and I certainly am worthy of being accused all the time because I'm a sinner. And I find myself regularly rebelling against God. When Satan accuses, my advocate my great priest 
He has something to say about that. What does he have to say? He's saying the blood's been applied. That is, yeah, yeah, Steve, Steve may very well have sinned, but the sacrifice covers that. I'm sorry. The sacrifice doesn't cover that. The sacrifice removes that. As far as the east is from the west. Not because Steve's so great. (laughs) Not even close. It's because the sacrifice is so great. It's because the sacrifice was so great and the power of the sacrifice was demonstrated in the resurrection. It's stunning to see. So Christ is not merely this historical thing that we're talking about that happened almost 2,000 years ago. As we speak right now, the results and ramifications of the resurrection are taking place. In that, what's happening? Christ is currently my great priest, advocating for me. Wow. It's amazing to see. Reminding of my not my righteousness, but the righteousness that is alien to me, that has been given to me, Christ's righteousness. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, since all this is true, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the new and living way that he opened up uh, for us, through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, since these things are true, What's the point of all that? It's a reminder, isn't it? All that's reminders, isn't it? Somebody? Yeah? Right? It's a reminder, isn't it? Since that is true, the writer of Hebrews says, verse 22, since these things are true, let us be careful today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day all the way to the end. Let us draw near. draw near which begs the question near to what right doesn't it because it doesn't say right there in verse 22 doesn't say to what or to who does it in verse 22 no what's he talking about let's draw near what's he talking about here's what he's talking about since these things are true then let us draw near to the holy places or to use the Old Testament term, the Holy of Holies. The call of the writer of Hebrews is this. We cannot just say, yeah, this is great. Christ died and was resurrected. That's right. Amen. That's awesome. Woo! Let's go have ham. Not there's anything wrong with ham. No, what he's saying is, Because these things are true, the ramifications of that ought to be so stunning that we ought to find ourselves being drawn near. So let's do it. Let's draw near to the holy place. What does that mean? The holy place is the presence of God. Let us draw near. Come. He's saying, look what he's done. Now let's draw near. Let's enjoy him. Let's enjoy the one who has loved us beyond our wildest comprehension. Let us enjoy, be satisfied with, 
be pleased to come into the presence of the one who's made us alive and rescued us and stood in our place and gave us his righteousness, let us enjoy him and be satisfied forever. Unlike anything else, the satisfaction is just momentary. I heard Billy Graham this morning say, do you want a new joy and new peace? And I said, it was on the radio as we were coming here, and I said, you know, I, I like Billy Graham, but he's wrong. Not a new joy, a new peace. It's not even a different joy, a different peace. It's the only joy and the only peace because all the rest of the joy and peace is fleeting, isn't it? It's situationally dependent. It's not real. As Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, it's like trying to catch wind. You can't do it. You just can't do it. You can't hold on. You can't grasp it. You, it. It's just fleeting. It just slips away. It's like trying to grab a soap bubble in the air. You try to grab it and it just pops and it's gone. That's the joy and peace that we all feel and experience every moment of every day. But he's talking about something radically different. It's not just a different joy and peace. It's the only joy and peace. It's peace that surpasses all comprehension. It is peace that is everlasting, that is eternal. It's joy that never ceases because it, it's joy in the one who never changes, who will never leave us nor forsake us. It's stunning to see the difference. This drawing near is coming through the curtain that was torn. That's what it is. It's coming near to the, to the one who has died for us and who is now our great priest. And he clarifies what he means when he says, let us draw near. I want you to notice. Here's where it gets really, really amazing. Let us draw near with a true heart. Really? Really? With a true heart? Huh? Really? Yeah. In order to understand how stunning that really is, we have to go back and understand what the Scriptures say about natural man. The Scriptures tell us very clearly in Isaiah that the natural condition of man is to do what? <coughs> well, it describes it really clearly what natural man has done and how mat natural man lives. We have despised him and projected him, right? We've looked upon him and we've seen nothing interesting in him. The scriptures say we've gone our own way. Rather than pursuing Christ, our natural position is to pursue elsewhere, to chase after everything else that doesn't do ultimately anything. Just like in the, in the children of Israel's day back in Jeremiah, they said, peace, peace, but there was no peace. It's like we're going, peace here, I'll find peace here, I'll find joy there. And there's no peace, no joy. That's the natural condition of man. Why? Because we've rejected him, we've rebelled against him, we've turned aside, we've gone our own way. But because of what Christ has accomplished, we now are able to draw near with a true heart. Wait, what's changed? 
Well, because of Christ's death and resurrection, the Scriptures tell us in Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace we have been saved through faith, not of ourselves, as the gift of God, not of works, what? Lest any man should boast, right? And before that, what does he say in Ephesians 2? We were, all the way back to the beginning, verse 1, he says what? We were dead in our trespasses and sins, right? Dead, 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 dead. Let me explain what dead means. Dead. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. That's what the scriptures say. We're living, but we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Physically, we're living. Spiritually, we're dead. That's our natural condition. And right after that, he says what? He, what? Made us alive. And he gave us a new heart. Which is why in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, he can say, let us draw near with a true heart. That is a heart that has been changed. Elsewhere, the scriptures say that naturally we have what has been described as a stony or hard heart. And he gives us a fleshy, soft heart. And so the idea is before we were hard towards God, hard against him, now we're soft towards him and after him as a result. So the call is in light of all these dramatic changes that have taken place because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, let us draw near with a, a true heart. Well, how do we have a true heart? How is it possible to have a true heart? Well, he tells us right here in verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith and that faith is given to us by the Holy Spirit. But notice what he says. How did that all happen that we could have gone from being dead to being alive, having a stony heart to having a, a fleshy heart? How is this possible this could have happened? Well, he tells us. It's because our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Now, those are metaphors. The picture is that before when we were in rebellion and then death and resurrection took place and sometime in our life when the spirit has moved, we were changed from death to life. And the reason why we were is the sprinkling and washing is referring to the sacrificial system. In the Old Testament, the sacrificial system involved a lot of sprinkling of blood and washing of bodies. And he's using that picture to say, what happened for you, if you are in Christ, that is, you are a brother, verse 19, that is, you can have confidence or hope to enter the holy places, the blood of the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice has been applied to you. You've been sprinkled with it, and as a result, you're clean. Because if you're not clean, you can't go before, before God. You can't enter but if the sacrifice has been applied to you, you've been sprinkled with blood and washed. But washed perfectly. And so now we can enter. This is what we celebrate today. This is what we celebrate. We celebrate what Christ has accomplished. We don't celebrate what we are doing in light of what Christ has accomplished. We celebrate what he has accomplished and remains accomplished. The call of the resurrection as the culmination of the crucifixion event is a call to a resurrected Christ. We don't worship a dead Redeemer. We worship a Redeemer that's been resurrected and 40 days later went to heaven and the Bible promises he will return. And we look for that. 
And one day he will. Maybe today, maybe not. But one day he will return. And when he returns, the scriptures tell us he's going to take his own to him. To be with him forever. John 15. Those who have the confidence to enter the holy place will be forever with him. Those who will not will be judged and eternally, eternally condemned. The resurrection changed it all. Changed it all. So let me just say two things, if I may, in conclusion. That is this. <coughs> if you are a believer this morning, someone who has been captured by the gospel of Jesus Christ, someone who has been, been saved, sin's been atoned for, could I just invite you to do what he said? Draw near. Today's a great day to draw near. Since all of this is true, draw near. Enjoy your Redeemer. He said, taste and see that the Lord is good. And I'm absolutely confident that if we taste and see, we will find him good. If we are redeemed people, saved people, again, the call is to remember and to draw near. To draw near. Fellowship with your Savior. And enjoy him. If you would sit here this morning and say, on the other hand, Steve, I hear what you're saying. And I hear it. But I can't say that I've ever been someone who has... Um, Embrace that and been captured by the good news of Christ's death and resurrection. Can I just say this? Today's the day. It's a good day. It's a good day for you to cry out to be saved. It's a good day to be redeemed. It's a good day to have your sins atoned for because that is the paradigm shift. We're either an enemy of Jesus Christ or a friend of Jesus Christ. Better put, we're either an enemy of Jesus Christ or we are a brother of Jesus Christ because the scriptures tell us that we are adopted as sons. Another way to put it, we are either, according to the scriptures, an enemy of Jesus Christ, an enemy of the cross, and therefore a recipient of wrath, or we are a friend, brother of Jesus. We've had our sins atoned for, and rather than being a recipient of wrath, we are a recipient of eternal blessing. Not because we deserve it, but because he's merciful. Or to put it a different way, if I would just be as crass as possible in this setting. We are either people who are still in the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, or we are people who are in the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God. We're one or the other. That's according to the scriptures. We're either in the kingdom of Satan or the kingdom of God, one or the other. The only way that changes from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light is if Jesus Christ is our Savior. That is it. If we call out to him, the scriptures tell us, he will in no wise cast us out. As he says, today's a day of rejoicing, amazing rejoicing. Out of all the stupendous events that have happened throughout world history, there's only one that has caused eternal change. 
and that's Jesus Christ. Death and resurrection. Amen? He is risen.